We are in the first, on the first, this is the first Sunday of the season of Advent, which is a new church calendar year. Uh, the church year starts with Advent, and uh, Advent is a, a season of preparation and as we uh, look forward to Christmas. And I'm reminded of an Old Testament prophecy, it comes from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah that speaks about this time of year. Jeremiah says, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So Advent invites us to have this spirit of expectation as we anticipate the coming of the Christ child again at Christmas. Join me in a moment of prayer, will you? Eternal God, uh, keep us aware of the meaning of this season of Advent in our own lives and in our time. Help us to be watchful and waiting in anticipation for all of those places where your kingdom and your love breaks into our existence and promises us a day coming when the struggles of this world will end and you will take control and your love will defeat evil and death once and for all. So we look forward to your coming and we open ourselves today to your presence as we worship here together through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Isaac Watts was a genius. At four years of age, he learned Latin. At nine, Greek. At 11, he learned French. And at 13, he learned Hebrew. His poetic reworking of the Psalms was magnificent. Unfortunately for poor Isaac, though, he was not a looker. Uh, his one chance at love came and went with a young lady named Elizabeth Singer, who actually fell in love with Watts, sight unseen, through his published poems. Elizabeth was so taken with this man who could write so deeply and so passionately that she threw caution to the wind and asked him to marry her in a letter. But when they finally met, she retracted the offer. She later wrote that Isaac Watts was only five foot tall with a shallow face, a hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and a death-like color. And she went on to say, I admired the jewel, but not the casket that contained it. Isaac never married. Uh, he spent his entire single life focused on the glory of God. In 1716, Watts published his poetic work based on Psalm 98 that would go on to become what many considered one of the greatest hymn, Christmas hymns of all times, Joy to the World. Most of us enjoy the music of Christmas in our house. The Christmas music usually comes out before Thanksgiving even. It evokes warm feelings. It evokes anticipation and a sense of even hopefulness. The carols that we sing remind us of the Christ whose birth we celebrate. I've chosen this year to focus our time together during these four Sundays of Advent around the theme people of hope. And as we explore again what Christmas means to us as followers of Jesus Christ, I am inviting us to look specifically at some of the very first Christmas carols. They're contained in the opening chapters of Luke's gospel. 
When Dr. Luke sat down to write his gospel, he recorded four original songs of Christmas. And over the centuries, the Christian church has recognized the special significance of these songs, sung by Zechariah the priest, Mary the mother of Jesus, the angels announcing good news to some shepherds, and by an elderly priest whose name was Simeon. These songs are amazing. First, because they were spontaneously uh, composed, but uh, because they were so profound in their message. They capture the sheer explosive impact of the birth of 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 a baby boy, not only for that time, for their time, but for all time. These are songs of comfort, songs of challenge, songs of quiet peace, and global upheaval, songs that wrap mind and heart around the most important moment in the history of the world. In this season that's so full of song, I invite you to reflect on these four original compositions and capture the meaning of the greatest miracle of all, that God came to earth in human form. True songs come and go, but these have endured over 2,000 years. We want to go behind the scenes with each songwriter and find out not only what the story is, but the story behind the story, and also to discover what the message of hope is for those of us who live in the 21st century. Our first stop on this tour is to visit Zachariah, whose song named in Latin Benedictus, after the first word in the song, is recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, the very first chapter, beginning in verse 67. So let me introduce you today to this one-hit wonder. Back in the early part of this first chapter of Luke, we learn that Zechariah is a priest in Jerusalem who is married to the daughter of a priest. Her name is Elizabeth. And this was considered a rare and wonderful thing for a priest. She would understand the demands of the priesthood far better than others. What's more, she loved the Lord with all of her heart, just as Zechariah did. Their happiness on their wedding day could not, be more con- uh, could not be contained. And many came and congratulated Zachariah, I'm sure, pronouncing blessings on this special couple. Um, May God be pleased to give you many children, they might have said in so many words. May he send Messiah uh, through you to set his people free. And that was the dream of every newlywed in Israel. Every Jewish bride was taught early on to have a large family because the next son just might be the Messiah, the heaven-sent deliverer of Israel. Every Jewish husband married with that hope in mind. If ever there was a couple that had all the right ingredients from a strictly human perspective to be chosen as the instruments through whom God would send his son to set all things right in the world, it was Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that's why verse 7 holds so much pain. It states the facts only. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. There are so many prayers, so many tears, so many unanswered questions in between those lines. With the incredible cultural and family pressure to have children, childless parents felt deficient. They felt passed over by God. Now, if you've ever longed for a child yourself with all of your heart, then you know the kind of self-examination, the kind of discouragement that Zachariah and Elizabeth were going through. 
you know how disappointment can turn to sorrow and sorrow to despair and despair into resolve. And now with the passing of years, they had long since packed up their hopes of ever having a child. Zachariah, by this time, is a card-carrying AARP member. He, has, he would already be drawing Social Security if he, if he would retire, which priests in that day never did, which is why he is so totally caught off guard with what is about to happen. Now, you've heard the old saying about why God gives us children when we're young, you know, when you have the energy and patience to put up with their energy and their impatience. Well, Zachariah knew that, I'm sure, and he believed it, but all of that was about to change. It was already the most important day for another reason in Zachariah's life. You see, a priest could go for years without um, getting selected for temple duty. There were so many priests in Jerusalem. But Zechariah was about to have a dream come true. Not only had his name been drawn for temple duty, but he is assigned to offer the incense, which was a once-in-a-lifetime privilege. And when a priest offered incense, he was just outside the veil, which was in the front of the Holy of Holies in the temple where the Shekinah glory of God's presence resided, and only the high priest could get close enough to that uh, spot to that revealed presence of God, and that was only once a year. Jewish tradition described a priest who get to, got to offer that incense as rich and holy for the rest of their life. So Zechariah had been trained for this possibility, and he was carefully going over in his mind all the steps assigned to him when he's interrupted by Gabriel, the angel of the Lord. Can you see this old man just standing there about to do his duty in his mouth hanging open as he heard the words of the angel in verses 13 through 15? But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. Gabriel then goes on to tell Zechariah about his son. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will turn away, uh, he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah in their history, the greatest of all prophets. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Zechariah's son was to be the long-foretold forerunner of the Messiah. But Zechariah refuses point-blank to believe the angel. His answer in so many words is, hey, senior adults don't have kids. And he implies that he won't believe it without a sign. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. So Gabriel basically says then, here's your sign. And the angel said, so I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. So from that moment on, for the next nine months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Zachariah was not able to speak another word. 
The next time Zachariah spoke, it was to name his son, John. We know him today as John the Baptist, as the angel had instructed. So in that joyous moment, as he held his son in his arms, Zachariah breaks forth in a song of praise to God. It is his benedictus. The lyrics to this song take us behind the scenes into the heart of a godly man on the eve of the incarnation, which means God became human. God became one of us to show us what God is like. Now remember, this song is not going to sound like most uh, hymns in our hymn book or a song that we may know today. It is partly uh, Old Testament kind of psalms. It is partly Old Testament kind of writing of the prophets because it is totally Old Testament. And so it will sound a little strange to our ears. But the great value of the song is that it reveals the deep faith of the Jewish people on the eve of Messiah's birth. Here's the song. Begins in verse 67. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's holding his newborn child. And, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to give this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way of the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. See, each line in this song is, is loaded with deep truth and with one overwhelming reality, and that is that God has at long last come. Faith will soon become sight. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah pours out from his heart a song about the purpose and the meaning of God in the flesh coming and living among us. God has kept his promise and he has visited his people. And now, uh, as we look into this song of Zechariah, there are four things today that I want you to notice about it. First, Zechariah sings about God's saving purpose. Zechariah scatters this great theme throughout the song, thrilling at the great purpose of God, which was to save us. And it comes out in four different ways. In verse 68, he says, the price to free us is paid. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. God has visited us, emphasizing that his care for us has moved him to come and rescue us. But it comes at a high price. He has come at extreme cost to himself to free us from the slavery of sin. In verse 69, he talks about how the power to accomplish our salvation belongs to God alone. He has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through the holy prophets long ago. God has raised up a mighty savior who has the power to finish what he started. In verse 71 and again 74, 
Zechariah says that the victory over our enemies is assured. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. His focus is practical. It's spiritual. God will deliver his people from any and all tyrants. But more importantly, God will deliver us from enemies that are far worse than the Romans. Enemies like sin and death and hell and demonic power, this heavenly hero will have no trouble conquering all of these enemies. And then in verse 77, he reminds us that erasing all of our sin is is certain. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Zachariah is telling us that God did not visit this planet just to kind of come and simply see how we were doing. He knew how we were doing, and that's why he came Uh, We were in trouble. And so God sent his son to save us. And that's what Christmas is all about. Secondly, Zechariah sings about the predicted fulfillment of God's promises. Zechariah just can't stop giving glory to God, the one who keeps his promises. And all that, and, and that, and that he, and all that God said that he would accomplish and do, he has begun to accomplish, um, Zechariah, all of that, and Zechariah emphasizes he promised through his holy prophets long ago that God was remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. You know, it's kind of hard for us in the 21st century to grasp the meaning and the magnitude of that thought that was probably in Zechariah's mind or the people of his day, because for 4,000 years, Long, dreary years, God seemed to neglect his people. Nobody nobody appeared more forgotten than the Jews who were chafing under the, uh, the rule of the Roman Empire. Reduced to an obscure province of the empire, they were rejected, they were overlooked, they were uh, despised, and, and nearly a thousand years had passed since the glory days of King David. And then for over 400 years, it had been over 400 years since their last prophet, a prophet by the name of Malachi, and God seemed to go silent. And on the lips of pious men and women, one question towered above all the rest, had God forgotten his people? Yes, the prophets spoke of one who would come from heaven. They spoke of one who would be born of a virgin in David's royal city who would sit on the throne of his father David and rule over the house of Jacob forever. They spoke of one who would rule the nations and redeem his people and restore Israel to its former glory. They spoke of one whose name was called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But maybe, just maybe the prophets were wrong. Maybe it was not to be. Maybe it was all just a dream, simply wishful thinking by generations of mystics and prophets. So many years had come and gone. Sons had buried their fathers. Then their sons had buried them, and their sons had buried them, and so the generations continued to roll on, and there was no word from heaven. So many indignities had been perpetrated on the Jewish people that a skeptical observer might also conclude that the Jews had blown their chance centuries ago and maybe God had forgiven or had given up on his people Israel. Maybe he was now working through the Greeks or maybe through the Romans. Maybe Israel was relegated to the back bin of history, a second-rate country whose days were long in the past. 
No one took them seriously when they continued to speak about the coming of a Messiah. It looked like a cruel hoax. Had God forgotten his people? It appeared that way. But throughout the darkest hours, the faithful remnant in Israel never gave up believing that God would surely somehow, sometime, some way keep his promise. The generations came and went without any word from the Lord, and even the godly were buried without ever seeing it come to pass. The hope of divine visitation never quite waned completely. There was always this flickering of hope, the belief that God would indeed visit his people and remember his ancient promises. And now at last, after all those years, the moment has arrived. As Zechariah looked down at his infant son, he knew that the crucial moment of world history had arrived. And in his arms he held the baby who would grow up to prepare the way of the Lord. And that could only mean one thing, and that was that Messiah was on his way. The long wait was over. God would indeed visit his people. Third, Zechariah sings about transformation. Moved by God's Spirit, Zechariah tells us that this Messiah brings to those who trust in, uh, what he brings to those who trust and follow him, there will be spiritual transformation to serve God. There will be emotional transformation to serve God without fear, and there will be behavioral transformation so that we can live in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. You see, so many people then and so many people today live lives of quiet desperation. We eke out an existence on a treadmill of futility, wondering what difference it all makes. But this old priest sees the end of all that in God's deliverer, and Jesus came so that we who are lost in sin might be lifted up and set free. And Jesus came so that we who serve other masters might serve now God the Creator. Jesus came so that we who fear that facing God might be reconciled to him, and he came so that we who feel disconnected in it from our lives, from any sense of purpose, might know life and know it abundantly. Jesus came so that we who once could not please God uh, might be now pleasing him forever. He came so that we who were unholy might now live our lives in alignment to him and to his purposes. That's the transformation brought about by the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. And then finally, Zachariah sings of unmatched impact. His solo closes with one final burst of praise about the light that God is focusing on his world, and he uses three very picturesque phrases to help us feel the impact of God's coming. He calls this in verse 78, the morning light from heaven about to break upon us, the sun is about to break the horizon on a dark world in order to bring an end to hopeless living. Verse 79, the verse, first part of it says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. All creation, you see, is on death row. They're hopeless, we're beyond human rescue, and then suddenly light and freedom breaks in. And then in verse 79, the last part of that talks about the purpose to guide us to the path of peace. You see, this is the difference that Jesus Christ makes. When Jesus Christ comes into our life, darkness and hopelessness has to leave. 
And when Jesus Christ comes into our life, we are released from the prison of sin forever. And when he comes into our life, our feet begin to walk the path of peace with God. That's the unmatched impact of Jesus Christ. This is the song of an old man who held a miracle child in his arms and contemplated the seismic shift that was actually taking place in his lifetime. Nothing like this had ever happened, and Zechariah just had to sing about it. But don't miss the point of his song. God has visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. And today that same God comes, and he knocks at the door of your heart and my heart. And he stands patiently at that door, waiting for us to open it and ask him to come in and be our Lord and Savior. Will you do that today? Will you, like old Zachariah, drop everything and welcome him into your heart? Or are you too busy to be bothered with Jesus? The familiar words of Philip Brooks in a carol that we sing at Christmas called uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem are very appropriate. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. May that be our experience this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, make us bold enough to believe your wondrous good news this morning. Help us to Forget our defense mechanisms and our fear of disappointed expectations and our skeptical questions. And let us pin our inside hopes on your outside promises of a future in which your son Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords in this world. Help us to be silent and to give control to you, to trust your timing in our lives. And Lord, as we sit here in your temple today, surprise us with a Gabriel Let there be wonders and miracles the likes of which we've never seen. And let our hearts be bold enough to respond to your good news with songs of joy and praise. We ask these things with hearts that are full of hope and hearts that are full of expectation. And it's in the name of your precious Son we pray.